0: Shalom Aleichem, I'm Aaron Lansky, and I'm here today with a great friend of the Yiddish Book Center, and that's Hank Netsky. Hankus uh, is known to almost everybody out there as the uh, founder many years ago of the Klezmer Conservatory Band, with which he's still active. He's a professor at the New England Conservatory of Music. He's the former academic director here at the Yiddish Book Center, and he's still involved in all sorts of projects with us. Uh, and he's an ethnomusicologist, a Yiddish ethnomusicologist. So, with all that said, Hankus, welcome. Great to be here, Aaron. All right, so, so tell us what you're doing, because I know you're involved in a big project upstairs, and I haven't even heard the details yet. So
1: uh, We are so excited about this project. It's just wonderful. And we are just coming right out of a meeting with the designer, Roger Westerman. And just brilliant ideas uh, that these folks have. So we're very, very excited. The, the purpose of the exhibit is really to kind of show how alive. Jewish culture is and Yiddish culture is uh, in in our time. And it's really to show people that they can be part of that, that they can make that happen, that they can take that into their own hands. And it it kind of gives them ways of doing that. Um, It's called the Discovery Gallery.
0: The Lee and Alfred Hutt Discovery Gallery. Yes,
1: exactly. And uh, the Discovery Gallery uh, is... is, uh, uh, an idea, in fact, that I discussed many, many years ago with Lee Hut um, as kind of a, a, a project that, that that would really put the the activism of the Book Center out there for everyone to see when they when they visit here. So um, it showcases, for example, the wonderful work of the Oral History Project, the Wexler Oral History Project that uh, Krista Whitney has been supervising for for a few years, um, and it shows. Uh, the Book Center fellows at work, and it, and it, it's a place where you can hear all kinds of uh, recordings of actual uh, interviews that Krista's done, that other fellows have done, and uh, on 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 particular topics. There's a wonderful wonderful one on food. There's uh, uh, great ones on language and uh, all kinds of aspects of Jewish culture. Um, and the part that I'm curating is um, basically something that shows uh, how you can actually get access to a culture that is not documented, a culture that's really been neglected and that is not uh, fully perceivable only through the books, only through the literature. The literature is, of course, an incredible part of the story, but it really shows what you can get uh, by, by looking very carefully at the legacy of a family, at the um, entire picture of what somebody really uh, really brings to the culture. W-
0: w- what does it mean that it was undocumented until now?
1: Well, the there's a way that I think I think the uh, when the Yiddish culture um, that came over with our um, with our grandparents and great grandparents uh, when it came over with our with. with with our great-grandparents, I think it, it's a culture that was very much alive. It's a culture that spawned newspapers and the Yiddish theater and all kinds of literature and all kinds of dialogue. And then there's the whole life of it. There's the whole the conversations in the cafes and the conversations, the the, the family stories and everything that happened that, that, that a vibrant culture has. Um, and there's a way that that has been left out, of the educational picture um, in this country, especially for the last 70 or so years, um, especially through assimilation, especially through the uh, rebirth of the state of Israel, which really became the focus um, in education, uh, the rebirth of modern Hebrew. Um, Pretty soon, what we had was a culture that was really a a newly invented culture, and Hmm. it replaced the culture that was really... The real thing, the thing that resonates for so many of us and that is so important not only to uh, young Jewish people, but people all over the world when they think about Jewish Jewish culture. um, It's a culture that we've tried to make available. But the ironic thing is that for those of us who are um, in that world of studying that culture, uh, finding resources is something that we really have to work very hard at. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, you can pick up a book of songs, but you can't have any idea how the songs were sung. It's just dots on a page. Mm. Um, you can you can um, pick up a prayer book, and you know read the text. But how? Wh- what was the melody that your great grandfather sang? You know, I mean, you, you we wonder those things. We really we really uh, those are the kinds of questions for me anyhow that are really important. And um, and and this exhibit is
0: something that really puts us in touch with that. That's great. So I know this is coming out of work that you've been doing for years now, right?
1: Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the main um, people who we're uh, documenting in this exhibit is a fellow named Morris Hollander, um, who uh, lives in Wa- uh, Watertown, Massachusetts. Right,
0: whom, whom you featured in an issue of Park & Traver a few That's years ago, right. right? That's yeah. right.
1: Exactly. And... Uh, He's uh, turning, I believe, uh, 86 uh, this coming Saturday. Is that Yes. And uh, he is originally from uh, a, a very, very small farm in a little village up a It's called in in the Carpathian Mountains uh, near Bergsatz, which is now known as uh, Beregevo, um, which has been taken over by Ukraine. Um, he came from this village. He grew up in a very... Uh, rich culture uh, with a Hasidic Rebbe living in his house, sharing his bedroom. Um, wow. He wow. he He's somebody who uh, learned all kinds of folk remedies from his grandmother and all kinds of interesting recipes and all kinds of things about um, just practical Jewish folk wisdom.
0: So how did you find him?
1: Well, it was uh, not that hard because when I uh, moved to Watertown myself, um, the nearest shul was this shul in Waltham, Massachusetts, and he was the Baal Tefila. He was the guy who was leading the services. He was the guy who was reading the Torah. And he was very, very friendly. Um, and right away, I got a sense of, a, of somebody who had a big story to tell. Hmm. and really you, t- t- tell, me, tell me how you knew that. Well, you know, there was a way that everybody gravitated toward, toward this guy. And yet, it was interesting. Sometimes in, re- in a religious environment like that, in a synagogue, you know, you're sort of maybe afraid that, that uh, you'll offend somebody or, or that maybe you're not religious enough to interact with this person because the culture, you know, because the religious culture and the traditional culture is somehow owned by more observant people. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right
1: away when you meet a guy like this, you know that's just not the case. He wants to share it with everybody. He saw it as a rich cultural heritage, and there was a way that we we had this simpatico right away. Hmm. You know, it was so obvious. He didn't have any children because he was not not able to have children after after getting out of Auschwitz, um, hmm. and 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 his and his wife was not not able able to have children after working you know during the war at a munitions factory in Berlin, which is uh, another incredible wow. story. Wow. Um, but um, so 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 he wanted to pass on this legacy and I got the sense of someone who who just was a bottomless you know he the source was just
0: like it was just overflowing. It sounds to me like Zivig Minash Shemayim, a match made in heaven. You had the perfect natural native informant and the perfect questioner, and the two of you got together. It must have been kind of uh, amazing. Well,
1: right? the, the interesting thing is, yeah. I mean, got together, I mean, the first time we got together was 1993. The last time we got together was last Sunday. So, <laughs> I mean, this has been going on literally mm-hmm. for almost 20 years now, and still... He'll remember something stuff? completely new, wow. um, and 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 there, which is the idea. That for, you know, one of the one of the interesting uh, things is we're dovetailing this exhibit with the uh, with the Onski exhibit, which is in the uh, which is
0: downstairs at the book center, right? Which you also curated, which, which I so t- also so curated. Us, for those for, for the three people who haven't been here yet, tell us what that <laughs> is, okay? Well, yeah.
1: that's an ethnographic exhibit which talks about um, the work of of of, of Shimon Anski, Um, in um, 1912 to 1914 to document Jewish culture because, just like we feel now, it was disappearing. <laughs> right, right, it's interesting, a right. hundred years later, we're doing the same thing. Uh, and it's fascinating because it's exactly a hundred years later. Um, but Anski felt that, okay, well, there was going to be a Bolshevik rev- revolution. He was, in fact, into that. He he loved the idea of the Enlightenment. He was very, very educated, but he also was from a shtetl originally.
0: Oh, yeah, he was a social revolutionary, I think. He was right? a social
1: revolutionary yeah, himself, but yeah. he he still felt he had this feeling that if we didn't go back and look at what was going on um you know in in these shtetlach, they were going to be gone. Hmm. These little hmm. villages, these little towns in Eastern Europe, there was never going to be a time to do it. So he went back and did that in 1912 to 1914, and we have this exhibit. And there's a way that what we're doing is we're kind of updating that a <laughs> hundred years later. I love it. And, I love it. And and seeing what we can, you know, what we can uh still find. And what he said was he, his, the purpose of his exhibit was to, to make this a living tradition, and that's what we call the exhibit, a living tradition. And the idea of that was that he wasn't trying to necessarily send people back to Cheder. He wasn't necessarily trying to have people... Um, do all the things that his grandparents did that he ran away from. But the idea was this was art, this was culture, this was something that that people could use as a point of departure for whatever their creative work was. and And to make the tradition a living tradition to him meant that they should look at the beautiful artwork of the way, for example, an ark looked in a synagogue hmm. in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, in a small town in Eastern Europe. And that itself might be an inspiration for something. Or in his case, the most famous example is people would tell him folk tales about all kinds of occult and mystical things, and he made it into a, a, a play called The Dybbuk.
0: Right, right. Um, um,
1: Svision Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Um, now for Ansky, Anski died shortly afterwards. He died in, I believe, 1921. So he hmm. was, um, you know, he was not able to re- realize his vision himself. But when we see the flowering of of art now and culture among younger people, we realize his vision is being realized. But the thing is that for us, again, just like Anski, in order to do this, amazingly enough, we have to do these ethnographic expeditions. We have to go find people who can be sources. Because again, the the whole story is not there. Um, You can't really piece it together. And the other thing is, of course, the actual interaction is really what brings it alive. So... Morris Hollander is a fantastic example because he is what we're calling we're calling his part of the exhibit a living source, um, and the idea is that you know it's not just a question of you know reading about him or hearing about him from his relatives. It's it's we, I can go visit him anytime I want. He can I can call him on the phone. You know if if he sees the exhibit and says this is wrong, we can correct it. But still he's someone who is is always adding to the story I and love it. and that's what's really beautiful so i mean in in the exhibit with mr hollander we have all kinds of amazing tangents too um not mm. only his upbringing and the and the, and the rich sounds that he remembers as a child from the you know from the various steiblock and synagogues that he went to um and the melodies from his father and from his uncle and 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 then all kinds of stories um but there's, a, there's a really an incredible side story with this exhibit too um, because um, Mr. Hollander, um, you know, he, he was one of two children in a family of six that survived the Holocaust. Hmm. Um, and therefore, one of the things he did was uh, he told his story. He's always been telling his story. Well, at one point, in fact, um, a, a, an artist down in Florida was so, com- so, so, so moved by this story that he decided to commission uh, a, a sculptor to, 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 to build a chair, which is called a kise Eliahu. And this is an old Jewish folk custom in synagogues that you have uh, this chair, which is used just for circumcisions and baby namings, because mm-hmm. the idea is it's all about continuity. And um, this, so this chair, which is in honor of the, uh, the uh, Hollander family, the fact And the fact that there are no children in this generation, mm-hmm. this guy built this beautiful chair, which is actually a cutout in the exhibit. It's an amazing yeah, looking yeah. thing. And for the last uh, 20 years in Florida, the guy's been tr- been, been car- bringing this chair around in a truck, and there are 138 Hollander babies <laughs> that have been named or circumcised in this chair. <laughs> so, I mean, it's an incredible story of continuity even right there. What a legacy. Um, my so God, it's, yeah. a, it's fascinating. Um, so there's there's just just all these side tangents. I mean, Mr. Hollander himself, um, you know, his 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 legacy is such that when people meet him, they just can't help but but listen to his jokes that they'll document or his 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 proverbs, or as I say, these 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 prayer melodies. and they've become, prayer melodies that people do in congregations now in Boston because he kept them alive. So it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating story right there.
0: You know know what I love about it? It's 2012. Yeah. And you're still collecting. Yeah. You're still documenting a world that just underscores the immediacy of all of this. It's not ancient history. No, it's not
1: ancient history. And one of the things that we forget is that, you know, we, uh, again, our generation, we didn't only grow up with a very limited view of Jewish um, history and education. But in, in many cases, we grew up also with the view that in, you know, that the Holocaust had destroyed Eastern Europe to the extent that there was nothing left. Mm. And the truth is what we found out, of course, when the Iron Curtain collapsed was that there were all these people over there who somehow through, through everything kept everything going. Uh, especially in a place like Czechoslovakia. Mm. Um, you know, Russia, of course, had a, had a revolution where they were suppressing Jewish culture. But in fact, in Czechoslovakia in the 1930s, it was flourishing to a huge extent, um, as it was in Poland. So when you when you find these uh, these immigrants who came over, for example, in the United States, like Mr. Hollander did in, in the late 1960s, they bring a world that could be 200 years old, you know, with them. And, and it's still there, and it's still very much part of it. When, when um, you know, when, when you get a Misha Beiruch from Mr. Hollander, you really feel like you're going to be cured. And what's a Misha A Misha is the prayer, for example, that you, when, you, when you read the Torah, you know, after each aliyah, when, you, when, you, when you're called up to the Torah, one of the things you get is a Misha Beirach, as somebody you know, you know, so so that your family can be well. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I don't know what would happen if I didn't get that every week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you
1: feel like you're in a world where that really matters, and as as as, as Mr. Hollander likes to say, you know, I, I, you know. Um, what do these prayers actually do? You know, why, why, do you, why does this guy who's almost 86 years old and went through Auschwitz and, and went through all this suffering and, 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 and was in a full body cast for three years after the war and in a oh sanatorium God. for tuberculosis, well, you know, why is he still getting up at 5 in the morning to, to go to Minion at 7 o'clock every day on a bus and leading the services? Well, as he would say, we don't know if it helps, but it sure doesn't hurt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So when's this exhibit opening?
1: The exhibit is, uh, is, is going to be opening at the end of April. I believe April 29th is the target date. Um, there are two other... Um, there are two other sources featured in, in my part of the exhibit. Because yeah. the idea is you, some of us are lucky enough to have a living source like, like Morris yeah, Hollander yeah. and it, with the full spectrum of the whole culture. Um, but it could be that, in fact, you could run into someone who's, whose son tells you about them and gives you the artifacts. And we're doing that with a, uh, with a couple from Brooklyn, Marty Levitt and Harriet Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, Marty Levitt uh, was a musician, was a klezmer in Brooklyn who came from a, a very renowned dynasty of klezmorum. Uh, so his father had played with Dave Terrace and recorded with Dave Terrace. His brother, his uncle had played with Dave Terrace. Uh, it was a, a big legacy of real klezmer royalty in New York mm-hmm. and, and also a story about the Catskills. And in, in fact, it's very parallel to the Levitt story, but it's an American story. Um, and then the other question is, well, what if you what if you don't even find a family member? What if you just find a suitcase? Um, what can you do with that? So we actually have a suitcase. A, a, a real live suitcase? A real live suitcase wow. that hmm. one of the Book Center members brought in about four years ago and just kind of showed up with the suitcase. And in the suitcase, there was a pocketbook. And in the pocketbook, there were hundreds and hundreds of pages of Yiddish.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And he said... I don't have any idea what any of this is, but it was my mother's. So maybe you guys can figure it out.
0: Hankus, you couldn't make this stuff up, you know? Uh, no. <laughs> it's fantastic. What a great story. So,
1: so uh, one summer uh, when I was running the, uh, the, the Book Center uh, Fellows Program, um, one of the fellows who's now here again as a fellow, Sarah Israel, in fact, sat down with those manuscripts and looked at them. And we deciphered the story of Sonia Victor. And when I started, again, asking around, who's Sonia Victor? What is, the, should I be paying attention to this? Is this yeah. interesting? Immediately, I heard back from Chana Malatik at YIVO, who's a great, great uh, historian of, of all kinds of Yiddish folklore and, and said that Sonia Victor was one of her main sources, but she had no idea what had ever happened to her. Wow. That, 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 wow. that, that, that she used to write in all the time to the pearls of Jewish folklore. And this suitcase... Contained a lot of the documentation of, of, of things that she she had written. For example, the article in the Ivia Yisker book uh, about the town that her family was from. She had written. Sonia had written. Sonia had written all wow. yeah all wow. kinds of things, and they were all in the suitcase. There was a, uh, a books by her grandfather, by her great grandfather. It was a fascinating thing. It was a personal story, and the idea is you can take this material and again use it as a point of departure for anything that you want to do creatively. I mean, it's just the idea. It, it's really looking at our heritage as a source and looking at it as a wellspring for creative ideas. That's what the Discovery Gallery is all about.
0: All right. I can't wait. April 29th is the big opening, Yer Hashem, Yep. And uh, we'll be counting the days, Hankus, And thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Aaron. You've been listening to White Goat Radio a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit our website www.yiddishbookcenter.org/audio. Our producer is Emma Morgenstern. I'm Aaron Lansky. Zaymish stark und gesund. Be strong, be well, and tune in again soon.